I know that going into it, I was actually really excited to do something that was so much about honoring Shakespeare, the playwright. I actually did it because I love Shakespeare. I'm originally an actor and there's a profound pleasure in those words. There just is. Hello and welcome to The State of Shakespeare. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And today on the program, we have Aditi Kapil. Oh, I should have asked how to pronounce your name. Is it Kapil, Kapil? Kapil. Either way, actually. Welcome, Aditi. Hi, thank you. Hi. Aditi is a writer, actress, director, who happens to be of Bulgarian and Indian descent. Her work (laughs) is produced nationally and internationally, and she's the playwright in residence at Mixed Blood Theatre and artistic associate at Park Square Theatre, a core writer at the Playwright Center in Minneapolis, and a resident playwright at New Dramatists. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. Also joining us today, Liz Engelman. Hello, Liz. Hi. Liz currently splits her time between the University of Texas at Austin. Jim, you know something about the University of Texas yes. at Austin. Hook'em horns. Yeah, hook'em. <laughs> Did you really say that? Is that right? Poke'em horns? Hook'em. Hook. Oh, hook'em. <laughs> Not poke. Hook'em. Liz splits her time between the University of Texas and the Boundary Waters of Minnesota, where she is the director of Tofty Lake Center, a creative retreat for artists of all disciplines. Liz has served as literary director of McCarter Theater, the director of new play development at ACT Theater, literary manager and dramaturg at Intamin Theater in Seattle, and she's worked on the development of new plays across the country, including the Playwright Center, Denver Center, South Coast Repertory Theater, and abroad. Welcome, Liz. Thanks. Wow, it's so great to have both of you here. We've asked you here to be part of our investigation of the Play On project, which is currently underway at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. And Aditi and Liz, you're working on Measure for Measure. So how far along in the process are you? We are at the point of, uh, we have a completed first draft of the translation, which we just heard out loud for the first time here in Minneapolis at the Guthrie Theater which was really lovely. And we are embarking on our second draft, which we're actually going to work on at Liz's place in the Boundary Waters. Well, that must be delightful up there. Oh, that's nice. Sounds like a delightful writer's retreat. Hook them, Trout! (laughs) (laughs) So you've got a completed first draft. You've heard it in front of an audience. And you're going to go back to the... We did it very privately. I think there was maybe one person that we... (laughs) (laughs) What did you you learn and what's on the agenda? Well, hearing it for the first time, we weren't sure if it was going to be the most embarrassing, clunky thing ever because, you know, when you just go word for word and just tackling certain sections, we don't know what the whole is going to be like. And so we were like, we don't know, what's it going to sound like? And we were really pleased with how it sounded and how actually the actors said, you know, it felt so much quicker because when our minds didn't have to work so hard to understand things that no longer made sense, the whole ride felt faster, even though it was not shorter in actual time. So coming into the retreat now, it's not so much about, oh my God, does this even work? It's really looking at certain sections that we've isolated to look at more where, how does comedy play out versus the verse? 
and to really look at like what is the line between translating and adapting the comedy sections to make sense today, first of all to us, and then to an audience coming to the theater. The question that jumps to mind then is, having listened to it then with a particular set of actors, how much of your to-do list is dictated by the way that these words sounded in these particular actors' mouths? You know, I think our to-do list is more dictated by the questions that these actors asked. They were such beautifully smart actors. And, you know, to, to me, I feel like the actor is the center of theater. They're the ones that at all times have to have an awareness of, I have to connect with the audience. And so they're like this amazing barometer for truth. And we came in and we had this draft and we said, please release any expectations of who these characters are. Please just approach this as new work and just see what you find. And be frank, be frank about when you feel like you're a field, be frank about all of that, right? And what was really interesting, I think, we were feeling like we did a pretty decent job updating the comedy. And what the actors said that we found fascinating that then triggered a whole other deeper conversation that's really exciting to us right now as we go into the second draft is, yeah, I understand what they're all saying now in the funny parts, but I don't feel like it's funny enough. And that's what led to this incredibly profound, like philosophical conversation that I think Liz was also referring to about what it means to translate comedy as opposed to just translating content of a line because Shakespeare was so relevant. He was so current. He was so incisive and ironic and political and sarcastic. And he had all these inside jokes and games he played with the audience. And we don't live in those inside jokes anymore. That's not where we reside now. But we have our own inside jokes. So this question of translation versus adaptation versus what is what is the debt you owe to comedy to make it hilarious because this man was hilarious. And to pick up on something that Aditi just said too, which is the difference between content and understanding content and really having a sense of what the experience is meant to be. Because mm-hmm. yes, we now understand what was said, but what was it for an audience to really try to experience comedy in the way that a Shakespearean audience experienced comedy? So really looking at it from an audience point of view and taking to heart what Louis Douthat had said to us at the very beginning, which is, how is Shakespeare being received? It's the receipt of understanding of content, but also the receipt of the experience itself. So what do we need to bend or change a little bit to give the audience that same experience, even if the content has to change a little bit for the bigger picture of visceral response? Wow. Amazing. What a daunting task. So difficult. The first thing that comes to my mind is that you're focusing in measure on the comedy, but measure for measure is one of those quote unquote problem plays where it's got a little bit of both. I mean, there's some very dark elements in Measure for Measure. And so I'm wondering whether that has any effect on the uproarious comedy elements that are in the play. The irony that makes something a problem play is when when the characters are so complex where you can't just say, oh, it's a tragedy or, oh, it ends in a comedy. You know, there's a wedding and everyone has a feast and everyone goes off happily. You know, the ending of this play too problematizes that, right? Like, do Isabel get together? What happens? You know, like, what what is this message at the end? Like, And the fact that this is quote-unquote a problem play because of all those complexities and the way the genre isn't just in the box that we understand it to be is really what's fascinating about the play to me. Boy, is it ever. Man, the ending is so unsettling for a quote-unquote comedy. It really sends you <laughs> sends you as the audience off scratching your head. Interestingly, the dramatic elements translate way easier <laughs> 
they actually were like potent. Some of those battles of intellect and morality between Isabella and Angelo are so amazing. They're so clever. They're so intelligent. They're so wise. They're so fearless and ferocious about what they believe in. And once you know what they're saying, there's actually not that much more that as a playwright, I feel I need to do because those arguments hold true today. Like I, we could be having this debate right now, honestly, we're in a very polarized country and we could be having debates about morality, the nature of legislating morality, what it is to be a good leader. These are all the things that are being debated throughout the play, both in the upper class echelons and the lower class echelons some of them with beautiful poetics and some of them with dirty words, but they're all around the same organizing theme. And that stuff actually was kind of great. So you've identified a challenge for yourself, which is to bring uh, the comedy up to speed, so to speak. Now that would be, I think, a daunting challenge. Do you feel like you have a way in or that you've just identified something that needs doing and now it's time to figure out how? Here's what I identified as my way in. Once we identified the problem, which actually really excited us. We also had another very interesting conversation, which involved the breaking of the fourth wall, how much that happened in Shakespeare, the someone just speaking directly to the audience and getting them, like, you know, getting them, poking at them, getting them riled up about something, making them laugh. And we identified as the prime example of this Pompey's speech in Act 4, where he's literally just doing insider stand-up, <laughs> insider comedy stand-up. Is this the speech that begins with, I am as well acquainted here as I was in our house? Yes. Yeah. So we identified that as an interesting point of reference because the fact is, because it's such insider humor, I translated it for the first draft, but it was so insider that even though we were like, oh, that's basically what he's saying, it, we didn't know the references. We didn't know what was funny about that little nickname that he had given someone in the speech. And because it's a breaking of the fourth wall, where our conversation then went was, well, in our contemporary translation, anytime anyone breaks the fourth wall, they're actually speaking to a contemporary audience. They're not speaking to an audience in Shakespeare's time. So what does that mean for us if we completely embrace the breaking of the fourth wall? The play remains in Vienna, but what if Pompey did break the fourth wall in that instance and speak to a contemporary audience and we brought all that humor with all its politics and its sarcasm and its ironic insider jokes and its relevance and its dirtiness for a contemporary audience. And so my experiment was that I would try to attack Pompey's speech, see what happened if I just approached it from that mentality. And then depending on how we felt about it, we would see if the rest of the play could sort of find a way to lift itself and earn that moment of breaking out and speaking to the audience. So my way in is that I rewrote just the Pompey speech in my path to draft two, and I shared it with my lovely dramaturgs. And that's now kind of our target text in terms of how we approach the rest of it. Oh, there's so many oh, things to think yeah. about. Oh my God, I, I want to ask, uh, oh it's, man. We had an interview a couple of months back with Valerie Clayman Pye, who is developing a new acting technique or an old acting technique where the actors are actually truly interacting with the audience. And so when you talk about 
breaking the fourth wall, that acting technique, which is based in Shakespeare's time, what you're talking about sounds like probably that it did happen. Yeah. But just to feel, again, in terms of what is the audience receiving? So who is this audience that he's looking out at today? And then how do we bring those references into contemporary politics, society, circumstance? And the the juggling act, I think, that Aditi's doing right now is, you know, how specific to get? How targeted is that finger pointing? Do we look at types or do we go to specific individuals? You know, what is that line? I have it here. I can read you our little experiment. Oh, you have to do this. <laughs> if you both have it in front of you, it would be really informative and fun to have maybe one of you read the original Shakespeare text that you are working from and then the, the new text. So we're about to hear from Measure for Measure the character of Pompey in Act 4, Scene 3. We're going to hear first the original Shakespeare text and then the translated text text from Aditi Kapil. I am as well acquainted here as I was in our house of profession. One would think it were Mistress Overdone's own house, for here be many of her old customers. First, here's young Master Rash. He's in for a commodity of brown paper and old ginger, nine score and seventeen pounds, of which he made five marks ready money. Marry, then ginger was not much in request, for the old women were all dead. Then is there here one master caper at the suit of master three-pile the mercer for some four suits of peach-colored satin, which now peaches him a beggar. Then have we here young Dizzy and young master Deepvow and master Copperspur and master Starvlackey the rapier and dagger man and young Dropair that killed lusty pudding and master Forthlight the tilter and brave Shutai the great traveler and wild Halfcan that stabbed pots. And I think 40 more, all great doers in our trade, and are now for the Lord's sake. Well, wow, I have no idea <laughs> what, is, what any of that is supposed to be. <laughs> That's not funny. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't just think that was my re- reading. I just think it's not no, funny anymore. It has but nothing to do with your reading. It was funny. I think it was hilarious back then. Oh, I agree. <laughs> Here we have our, and this is an in-progress experiment for draft two that we have not completed yet. So you guys are getting like some in-progress dirt here okay. that no okay. one else has seen or heard. This is actually the first time we're hearing it out loud, isn't it, Liz? <laughs> Wow, it's yeah. a world premiere right here on the state of Shakespeare. I love that. All right, so this is Pompey again, translation version. Why, I have as many good friends here as I did in our whorehouse. One would think this was Mistress Overdone's very own establishment, for I see here sinners aplenty. There I see Master Subprime made his bonuses selling houses made of paper, and then he huffed and puffed and blew them down. The pigs, they caught him and threw him down a well, and there he waits for his bailout. Promises as soon as you pull him out, he'll repay you in kind, open you a fake bank account, or twelve. Then there's Master Shale Oil over there. He'll stick his pipeline where he please, be the lady willing or not. He'll swear the condom won't break, but he springs a leak every time. Mend your ways, Master Shale. Our nation runs low on unpolluted women and drinking water alike. (laughs) Master Shale's not actually in jail. He's just visiting his friend, the banker, who's still down the well. Then we've got Master Wiener, the texter, and young Master Pornhub. And there's Master Lovegood killing in the name of life, while Master Hategood guards his yard with his forty-five. And Master Troll, the internet bully, 
And Master, is this a roofie in my pocket or am I just happy to see you? <laughs> and fancy Master Elite, the absentee liberal, and Master All Lives Matter, tilting at windmills while his house burns. And I think I see 40 more, all great doers in our trade, now crying in vain for the Lord's aid. Oh, wow. my God. Aditi, <laughs> that is fascinating. And funny. <laughs> and you laugh. Yes. Yeah. And it was not charitable laughter. It was real laughter. Is Anthony Weiner the only one who specifically gets it on the nose? Yeah, he is. And the only reason I kept him is because I'm hoping, because his name is actually funny. Right. I wonder, and this is the thing that Liz is challenging me on, so we're wondering. I wonder if it sustains funny even after we no longer remember the actual event. But does that matter? Because I don't know. I that's such a good, that's such a good question. Certainly, you're right. You're right about the name, of course, and and then you know, sexting is probably going to be around longer than, exactly, than Anthony yeah. is. That's a fascinating question in itself because all of the things that we're talking about right now that Shakespeare wrote, we have no idea what the references are. I mean, if his last name had been Barton, we probably wouldn't no. be just pointing our fingers at him. Do you <laughs> feel that both ends of the political spectrum are getting equally sent up? I don't know about that. What's interesting or is um, that even a priority? This one, a little bit. Yes, I was trying to be a little even-handed, but also it was a game. It was a game of what's in our public consciousness. It's interesting because Shakespeare's inside jokes were for London. We're a different society now. Our inside jokes are more global. There's also the fact that, I mean, Shakespeare was, I think Louis mentioned this, Shakespeare was very specifically sending up King James. Is that what you said, Liz? Yeah, there was yeah. a new king and Shakespeare was poking. He was poking and he was criticizing and he was saying, hey, now this and that, and here's a debate. I'm going to put it in Vienna so you don't get super offended. But he was pointedly critiquing a specific ruler and a specific philosophy of rule as represented by the current king. Now, we're a democracy. It's Yeah, it's an interesting question because in this play anyway, because part of the game is also making sure that the moral and emotional debate of the play is what is infusing the speech that Pompey makes to point out to the audience that this story doesn't just belong on this stage. It's in your lives and I'm talking to you right now. And what this play talks about is the perils of legislating morality, which is a very specific point of view, you know, and it lands in a place where it's saying humans are humans. And there's a point at which it just gets cruel and unusual. There cannot be absolute morality legislated in society. And so those politics are part of the play. So it's kind of impossible not to embrace those politics in Pompey's name when he talks to the audience. And that lands the comedy in a specific space, too. So it's not just about sending people up. It's also about honoring what the play is saying. Also, I think poking on what is done in public and what is done in private and that kind of, you know, throughout this play, there's that, that kind of hiding in disguise. And you think politically, you know, we've had in the past so many people who the public face is, oh, I'm on the committee for family values. And then, of course, what are they doing in private? And so there's a little bit also of, okay, you say that you are moral and ethical. And what are you doing on the inside? So, you know, kind of pointing at that as well. And I think that is incredibly relevant today. In terms of morality, legislating morality, Shakespeare consistently skewers the overly pious. Mm -hmm. And I think that the overly pious can get skewered in this day and age as well. And I think you did, did just that. Yes. And also an audience can pretty comfortably keep some of those targets 
targets at arm's length, not everybody in the audience is going to be an investment banker or, <laughs> you know, a, a real estate Ponzi schemer. Mm-hmm. But where it really touches home are those moments when, when the audience gets a little bit uncomfortable and gets their nose bloodied as well. And I think that's part of humor, though. Probably essential in order for the theme to land mm-hmm. on a personal level. Yeah, I stopped sexting after I read that from the <laughs> No, from the very beginning, we've been looking at this in a way like this intimate, gritty TV drama, like a house of cards and realizing too, you know, this is second only, I think, to Mary Wise of Windsor that it has the most prose in all of Shakespeare. You know, even the Duke speaks in prose often and just these gritty two people scenes or debates that there is something very kind of focused down lens zooming in on these intimate conflicts at the highest stakes. I think it's an incredibly, shockingly contemporary play. When we originally started working on it, I hadn't read it in a really long time. And the more we dug into it, the more it felt so present and relevant. Like you could write this play today and be speaking to our society in a very direct way, which I think is so brilliant and so fascinating. And We spoke with Kevin Rich, who put a bug in our ear about this process. And he mentioned that he would be very interested to see how the work of the playwrights who are involved in Play On will be influenced by this experience. Have you discovered ways in which you're going to be approaching your work differently now, having had the opportunity to spend this time with this play? That's a good question. I feel like with everything I write, uh, like I feel like there's this trail of like history of thought and evolution of thought and artistic texture that sort of trails me around as I go through life as a writer. And I actually feel, I don't know, I feel like weirdly privileged to get to trail some in-depth work with this language, this Shakespearean language with me as I go forward. But yeah, I'm kind of hoping I take some of this depth with me. He was pretty fearless about having complex thoughts and challenging the audience. I love that. I love that. I feel like our contemporary theater can stand a lot more of that. What I found so interesting going into it as deeply as we have is just to see how many notes and colors and patterns and images and are buried and are embedded and interwoven into each page of the play. And one of the things that Aditi and I did the first time we read the play, we read the original out loud with actors. And what we did is we kind of traced through what words popped up and repeated over and over again in the each page and kind of watched the story kind of evolve from those words and images and how what words would come up when it was Isabella talking what words were resonant when it was Angelo or the Duke and starting to kind of you could almost watch the journey of the play and the evolution just from words and images and just so just kind of taking that into when I think about playwriting today like are our writers as mindful of how you can kind of embed in your play the richness of word and image and if you just took those out in a modern play for example could you trace the journey of the play like you can in some ways in Shakespeare so that's just something that that I've taken with me at this point to kind of look for in modern work I love that answer that's fantastic yeah you started with the reading of the original text with a group of actors around a table and what a brilliant way to start just to get grounded in in that and discover what jumped out at you I think this goes back to Dee Dee's triple threatness of actor playwright and director 
Because Aditi, I remember you saying at the beginning, just like this text is meant to be heard. So to really understand this play, we, you know, we have to hear it in the air and hear what it's like out of mouths before you, you said you could even go in and do anything. What does it sound like? What is its melody where, you know, and so it felt like for us essential to have it be heard. And it's so crucial to understand the, the symphony of a play, you know, the musicality, the rhythms, the tonality. And also I feel like the really amazing thing that we gleaned that I didn't necessarily anticipate, but I'm so grateful we did it because then we got this treat, is Shakespeare's been around for a long time. And so we carry around a lot of presuppositions about what a play is about, what it's like, what its characters are like. And a lot of that is just holdover from certain eras of acting. And it allowed us to clean all of that out of our system and just very honestly approach this play, its themes and its characters. And the fact is that I would argue that there's not a single simple villain in this play. I think that they're all humans wrestling with some really, really big questions. I think that you couldn't be more right. I think that most of Shakespeare's, I mean, he holds the mirror up to nature, as they say, but his characters are very multidimensional. What you just said, Liz, makes me think about another guest we had who talked about Shakespeare giving each of his characters a linguistic fingerprint. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Just to go back to Shakespeare, Shakespeare for a second and then to bring it back to is that happening now something that we've been challenged by from the very beginning is is the duke not only how we feel about him and what kind of leadership does he represent but just his language at the beginning you know that first speech of his took us so long to just get through and understand and it's the opening into the play and we're still trying to figure out you know get wrap our ears around this language and so one of the things we were talking about was, you know, how do you show that this character is somebody who is verbose, is a talker, can obscure through language, and yet you want to make sure the audience is still understanding what is being said, even though it's supposed to be <laughs> verbose and sometimes almost obscure, not understandable, because at the end of his first speech, you know, the guys left on stage are like, what did he just say? What are my orders? So it's got to be clear that he's saying so much they don't necessarily understand what he is tasking them to do at the same time we want to understand actual content of the words so again as a character fingerprint you know we have to kind of honor his verbosity but make it understandable and so figuring out yes each character's language that way and he was the most challenging still is well that is a dense first speech I'm looking at it right now <laughs> I think the thing we have a first pass at it from our first draft obviously where we now know what's happening and I feel like the consensus with the group was that it could use just a little more invasive work because it is the opening to the entire play and we want to hook onto plot <laughs> sooner rather than later. I think the thing is that for me, with the Duke in particular, I'm pretty committed to not cutting down on how much he speaks. I'm committed to it throughout the translation. I have not cut a single line. There are as many lines there as there were in the original. I've kept the iambic pentameter. So, so there's a lot of, there's a, it's almost like a puzzle game. And because I have to do it within that number of lines and because I have to do it in iambic pentameter, it is an amazing convoluted puzzle in which I think at one point during our work on the first draft, I had actually made it even less clear. <laughs> Liz was like, yeah, no, you did not help anything there. And I had to like go back to the beginning and structure the thoughts a different way. It's actually about structuring his thoughts. 
He has one simple thought, but he's going to take 14 lines to say it. How the hell am I going to structure it to drag it out for 14 lines? You know what I mean? Now you're speaking like an actor. Yeah. <laughs> Liz and Aditi, you mentioned how much you appreciated the opportunity to collaborate with one another on this project. And I think that whomever it was that came up with the idea of a collaborative effort should be credited with a, with kind of a brilliant insight into the process. What do you know about how those decisions were made? Well, I, Aditi alluded to it earlier, I think, you know, doing this alone, it's a bit, it's a huge task. If you really are looking at, again, receptivity and how something is coming across, and if it's clear, how do you do that on your own? If you think you understand what you're doing to somebody else who's not in your brain, <laughs> Uh, take it the same way. I mean, I just think, you know, it's a vote for dramaturgy, of course, in general, but, you know, just being able to have what you're doing reflected back and just to be in conversation is important. One of the challenges is sometimes she might leave something which is very clear to her smart brain. And I'm like, I still don't understand what this means, you know, or something that might seem clear to me. It was interesting to see her make a change. So it's a really interesting calibration to just see how brains work to go, how do we receive Shakespeare? Like, what is our understanding? What are we looking for or listening for that makes a change? And just to, for all honor and credit too, we were really lucky that we're the only team that gets another dramaturg as well, Andrew Carlson, who's a colleague of mine at UT, who's like Aditi is also an actor and he's a dramaturg and scholar as well. And so to have his ears and his understanding as well as the way I approach it and then Aditi's magic, it's been a really wonderful collaboration. So I think the impulse was to have a playwright dramaturg team so that conversation around choices can happen, context can be explained, Some, there is somebody there to be a first receiver <laughs> There are, you know, people there who can, you know, you can have a conversation before a choice is made. It seemed pretty logical to have teams approach this. I have to say, the thing that I feel like dramaturgs, this is why I love dramaturgs. They're, they're like my favorite collaborators. The thing that dramaturgs do is they don't screw around. They don't get distracted by, oh, but I had a really neat thought. I want to put my neat thought in the play they are always able to take that moment and that bit of distance and hold you accountable to what the actual truth of the story is, what the truth of the characters are. All of us in theater go down a little bit of a rabbit hole when we're in process and we get very subjective and very much in our own brain hole and we think everything that we think is fascinating. And the thing that I think is so incredible about a dramaturg is they have the global intelligence to always go, that's really interesting. Maybe you can take a little bit of that, but here's what you're accountable to. Here's the greater picture. Here's the greater story. If you want to go down that path, this is how that's going to affect the greater story. Keep that in mind. So the fact that I experiment, I, I, like I feel very free to experiment and try things and be like, what if we do this? Because Liz will always be the one who's like, great, this is how that affects it for an audience. And she will notice that and she will point it out and she will hold us to honoring that. And yes, shout out to Andrew, who is amazing, our third limb. <laughs> that, that's such a great answer about dramaturgy, because I think, you know, it is something that when I deal with students, they don't quite understand what a dramaturg does, but I'm going to have them listen to that answer and they'll understand very clearly. This has been a great conversation and I really enjoyed the opportunity to speak with both of you. It's such an inspiring project and we came to it, I think, from the point of view of, of others who were speaking disparagingly of it. And now that we've gotten a chance to dig into it, I'm, I've, I'm a real fan. I think it's a, it's a <laughs> 
an incredible undertaking. Aditi and Liz, thank you so very much for joining us today and talking about this amazing project. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. I'm Jim Elliott. And I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.